Welcome to the Animation Industry Podcast. My name is Terry and I am your host. Today I'm chatting with a super swell dude who lives and breathes the art of storytelling and stop motion. Originally trained as an improv actor for theater, David Piccini has gone on to direct and produce projects for Second City in Chicago, the US Department of Health and Services. He's done projects for TV, short films, features, and immersive experiences. And above all this, David is also a stop motion animator who is also the founder of Hashtag Mo Stop Mo, which is an organization dedicated to fostering community around stop motion. They do galleries, events, mentorship programs, and film festivals. So if you're looking to enhance your storytelling technique, David is gonna share his secrets of getting your narrative projects noticed, or if you're a stop motion animator looking to join a strong stop mo community, David shares just how you can get involved with Mo Stop Mo as well. But first, this episode is sponsored by my friends over at Bloop Animation, which is an animation learning platform packed with premium online video courses for aspiring animation filmmakers. They have courses for all major programs like Maya, Animate CC, Toon Boom, Blender, TV Paint, and many others, as well as some non-software courses like a storyboarding course, animation foundations course, and even one about making graphic novels, which covers absolutely everything you need to know from start to finish. Their courses are all in video form, so there are no deadlines or application process. You simply just pick the course you want to learn and start learning in seconds. They even offer a free ebook titled Making an Animated Short, which covers their entire process step by step of how they made one of their films from coming up with the idea to storyboarding, animating, and all the way to exporting the film. And you can get that book for completely free at bloopanimation.com slash animation industry. And you can check out their complete course library at bloopanimation.com slash courses. And of course, both those links are in the description of this video. So please check them out and help support this podcast. Now let's jump into the chat. Hi, David. Thanks for coming on this chat. How's it going? What's new with you? Um... Uh, what's new with me, I yeah. guess, is like the bigger thing. Yeah, like right now on this uh, month of July, we are still poising ourselves to release. Most Stop Mo is poising ourselves to release our festival footage, but you know everything's on postponed because of COVID. So uh, spirits are maintaining. Took some uh, took a break some uh, from the grind of things just recently so i'm kind of doing well i'm uh maintaining pretty well do you think do you think COVID is kind of setting back most of mo a little bit like you, you know you've kind of seen some growth with the with the festival and do you think it's the COVID is like setting back that growth a little bit or do you think once everything's over it's going to continue i i'm confident that most mo is going to continue so i've got some grand visions for most mo the festival is kind of the beginning of it. We already have programming. We have participation. We are set to still premiere our film. We've, uh, con we're continuing to network with other stop motion professionals. I mean, the good thing about being in lockdown is it doesn't affect animators as much as it might affect other people in the entertainment field, visual storytelling, whatnot, where you have to interact with people. You could just do an interview, uh, do meetings online, and then parse out the work. Actually, it's a model that uh, I've been working on along with uh, my friend, Mike Owens, Wendy Owens. Uh, we are kind of modeling how can we do stop motion in different parts of the world for a cohesive story. Yeah. So 
to be honest, COVID is, a, is probably a well-timed test to see how effective that can go. Yeah, that's interesting. You're kind of forced to. That's also something that my school is trying to figure out because, you know, in third year, which I'm going into, you do a group stop motion film if you want to do the stop motion path. But everybody's going to be working from home where students don't have all the sophisticated equipment that the, the studio at school does. So it's like we're trying to figure out right now how we can make a cohesive looking story where everybody's working from home with what they have. So, yeah, it's a perfect kind of test. I think that's cool that you're already kind of exploring that. Well, I think the benefit of a, a situation like that, especially in the educational arena, is working with people who have experience uh, with fabrication. So I ran uh, the stop motion department at the Academy of Art University in San Francisco for a uh, couple years. And in that process, I you know, there was a lot of people who wanted to take online stop motion classes and even talking to other instructors, you could teach principles of animation and you could do some, you know, virtual things in terms of just the fundamentals. But when it comes to stop motion, when you're dealing with gravity and stability, it becomes a little trickier and not to have that hands-on interaction at some level, one point or another is more tricky. So with most stop mode, knowing that I have some fabricators who will do something that I've seen their work before, that's helpful on that. In terms of other people who would contribute, whether it's in post or effects or anything like that, uh, that can be vetted out online. So it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a tricky, it's a tricky yeah. thing with, most stop, with uh, stop motion in general when you're trying to produce something online. So are you saying that, you know, those fabricators are going to ship out the puppets and equipment or the sets and stuff to various people and they'll film it within their own workspaces? Because the first thing that comes to my mind is how can you have a consistent look and feel to a stop motion production that's filmed with potentially different camera equipment sets and rigs and things that people have versus if you're working on 2D or 3D, you just send the files and you can just work straight from them. Well, um, that also kind of comes down to the quality of animators and fabricators you have. Like as an animator, professional animator, or professional fabricator, everyone has a style that they can lean towards, but there's a style of the film. And if they are having trouble conforming to the style of the film, whether it's animation or fabrication, then you kind of figure where will they be most effective or where is this a learning opportunity and how will that look, especially in a virtual environment. Um, but with my team, I was really lucky. We started our film in the same room and there were different levels of experience. But what I would say is that we all kind of got to the same plateau of what it should look like. And uh, with our film that's uh, due to be released with our uh, film festival called The Cookie Cutter, I'm pretty happy with the consistency, even if it's in different locations. And it was shot with different cameras and whatnot. So um, knowing film, knowing frame rates and lenses and exposures, a lot of that has a lot to do with it. And I think um, sometimes you could overthink something. Sometimes I'm like, oh wait, this might not work. And then you see it and you're like, oh, I was thinking about that way too much. Fair enough. And I'm excited to see your final film. I've seen a bunch of the previews and it looks fantastic. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> it's very Pretty smooth and, and like fun and how you've approached the movement and whatnot. So 
I mean, we've had a wonderful core team of animators and fabricators. Uh, Zaldi, Dingle, and Nia Zani, and Fu Yang are all people that I met while we started production on this. Uh, they've been my core group and actually have become part of most Stopmo. The, and it's like between the animation, the illustrations, the storyboarding, the post-production, we do like cleaning up and uh, we, we've got a good core team that could get things done. And now we're doing, uh, I'm, I'm actually kind of doing a little, I've been putting on my wish list items. And my one thing is trying to get a little bit more of a robust uh, end credit sequence. So like right now the film is done with everything, but there's this end set credit sequence that I kind of want to put in there. So I'm wondering if I'm going to challenge people again. Do Since it. It's like we have the time. <laughs> Do it. Yeah. Do you want to give like a two sentence uh, promo or trailer of what, what it's about for people who haven't heard of it? Um, well, uh, the official IMDB tagline, if I could remember it, <laughs> let's see, is a, uh, uh, we, our main character is named Steve. Even though it's never said in the film, we affectionately call our main character Steve. It's like, Steve, Steve's cookie addiction has gotten the better of him, but now that it's bathing suit season, he's trying to whip himself into shape until an ambitious cookie scout, dead set on the sale, uh, gets in the way. Um, and that's basically it. All right, so... Oh boy, there's like a dog fight going on outside, if you can hear that. Yeah, I do, yeah. <laughs> I think it's funny that he's trying to get in shape because he's like this blue blob as it right. is. He's like, yeah. what is his ideal shape anyways? <laughs> well, it's funny because I was really getting, I was digging deep about what this film is about uh, early on. And a lot of people were just attracted because it's just this red glob of clay. And I mean, I was just like saying, there's a lot of little subtle messages about body dysmorphia. Yeah, like a clay character having body dysmorphia is kind of interesting commentary. So that's kind of like a little bit of the foundation of it. It's it it's definitely look. It presents itself as a very playful thing, and then it gets a little deeper and darker. Not for a, a long time, but for enough to kind of like really kind of take you sideways. Gotcha. I said blue, and you you said the main character is red, right? There's yeah. a blue character in it, though, right? Oh, uh, the the kind of like greenish uh greenish blue character that's our cookie scout oh, okay that's what I'm saying. her name is rory and that name is also not put in the film you know when you do pre-production you know we had a, a whole pre-production team and they named the characters and stuff like that's that right. but we're not using any language or anything like that or titles so keeping it international there's no need for it but that's how we talk about the characters yeah so i i I want to chat about Mo Stop Mo because you mentioned that a bunch of times and, you know, your career and storytelling and stop motion, all that wonderful stuff. But I'm wondering, uh, you know, going into this chat and knowing that this podcast is kind of about the career development of, of you, what is kind of the one thing that you hope somebody listening to this takes away from kind of your journey into all this? You know, uh, I... I took a lot of comedy courses and improv classes in Chicago and I directed comedy while I was there. And I had one instructor that I really liked named Jason Sohn uh, when I was in training at the Annoyance. And we were doing improv exercises. And at one point I just kind of said something. He didn't necessarily agree with me, but I still believe it to this day is that anything that's ever been done in the world, it could might as well have been you doing it. Right. So he did, he's just like, oh, you don't think, 
talent or I was like, oh, of course, drive. It's just like, if you set yourself to do it and you put in the work, you can do whatever not only has been done or things that may yet, that are yet to be done. It's like, why not you? Like, you know, why this person? There's no, there's, I mean, I don't want to get too spiritual here, but I mean, there's no predetermined yes or no. The only limit is yourself. Gotcha. So it's like stuff is being made anyways. So yeah. it might as well be made by you. Yeah. I like that. And there's a lot of people who will kind of get in the way and say that's not true or you can't do that. It's like, who are those people? Why do you think people say that though? Like what, what, what is the drive behind that? Because it's really hard to get in or like, they, you know, they just don't see the world as opportunistic. So uh, I give story seminars and story is based in one thing, um, survival. All stories are about surviving on a light level, on a heavy level. If you name a story to me and it's about surviving it and learning something, that is because since the dawn of humans, we've passed along guidelines. Guidelines have become stories and stories have become entertainment, but they're all based in that same thing. And the, what I always say is just don't die. There's like two things, just don't die, but then the other end of it is thriving. So we have in our Neanderthal brainstem, a signal that's constantly saying, just don't die, just don't die, just don't die. Right now is a perfect example. And the more anxiety that we invest in our Neanderthal brainstem versus our evolved intellect is going to set us back. So yeah. when you see a challenge, and I've seen this in a lot of my students when I'm first teaching animation, they're like, I can't do that. There's no way. It's like, I'm like, right now you are wrestling with your Neanderthal brainstem. You can do that. You just don't know how yet. And you're intimidated by the process of failure or even worse. And failure back in Neanderthal times is death. Right. So, so basically it's like conquer your fear and try it and see if you like it because if it's not enjoyable, that's a whole other thing. But if you're not doing it because you want it, but you're afraid, then that's just you living on a base level and you might as well be in a Petri dish. Yeah. I mean, that, that what you just said really kind of resonates with me because when I was working in my business job for like a decade, I was constantly kind of had this why not animation in the back of my mind, but it was such a block for me to even think of that because that just unraveled all these fears of... I'm not good enough. I'll become homeless. Nobody's going to like what I'm doing. Uh, you know, so like my life is over basically. And, and it was until I really kind of sat and worked through all that and figured out, no, I really enjoy this. And there are other people in the industry that do this professionally. Why not me also? It really changed the career trajectory of my life. <laughs> and do you feel like you're a happier person now? Yeah. It's, I was just talking about this the other day. Um, it's so strange. Like, when I was working in my business career, life was kind of just easier compared to this. It was, you're almost on autopilot. You're like, you go to your nine to five every day, you do the work, yeah, it's a little bit stressful at times, it's hard, uh, but at the end of the day, you go home, you have all your safety and securities. But now, now that I'm more or less relying on the dream that I'm pursuing, it's much more scary and like, but at the same time, I feel much more in control of my life and my career path than I ever did before. So yes, I would say I'm much, much more happier. Like I get to do, I get to talk to people like you, which I would have never done before. And I'm working on animation, which 
I hadn't done for like 10 years because I was so scared to even do it on the side because <laughs> it was just like, I can't do this. Well, I don't, I know I'm a bit older than you are, but I'm also of uh, my parents' generation where they're saying, you know, you go from A to B to C, you go through school, you get your degree, you get your job, you get your family, and then you live out your life. And then you retire and, with a cottage and a boat. Right, and a pension, yeah. And pension. now it's like none of that exists in this country anymore. Right. But outside of that, it's just like it's a mentality that is, it's a safety mentality. Again, it's like don't deviate from the trodden path. Right. Or else you will have, you know, there'll be things that are unexpected, assuming that you don't want things unexpected. Right. And as an artist, it's funny, um, the, like I'm, you got a business degree. Yes. And that business degree is probably very transferable and you could probably leave animation right now and get a job in business, especially with what you're doing now. And it shows your ambition and it shows your yeah. like entrepreneurship. So you could probably insert yourself into many different business positions. So it's like A to B to C. I have my degree. My degree is my ticket for a job, you know, outside of an interview process in a little bit. But as an artist, first off, no one has ever looked at my degree. Right. Uh, no one's ever looked at my degree. Uh, but the other thing is there's not a process of A to B to C. There is not like, I'm going to go to animation school and then right away I'm going to be accepted into this big studio. And then all of a sudden I'm going to be directing Hollywood features. Yeah. It's, it's not that way, especially now with so many different forms of animation. So the fear factor is higher for an artist, but I also feel like a true artist has more of an adventurous spirit willing to go into the woods and take the, the road less traveled. Yeah. Well, it's like, all through growing up and education, everything, you're fed this path or like this process. Like you just said, you A to B to C, you go to school, you get the job, you work your way up slowly. And that's kind of what my business career was. You know, I went to business school, I got the internship, I got the job afterwards, and I slowly worked my way up to different positions, et cetera. And I think if you choose to be an artist, you kind of have to put, you have to scrap all of that and say, you know, there's no set path in becoming a successful artist. You really have to figure it out for yourself. And there kind of is still because like I'm going to school right now and arts like animation school is still a set path. They have the internship and, you know, like they have a, a Sheridan has like a 97% or whatever graduation to employment within the first year rate. So it's still right. kind of this path. But I think if you want to become or at least from the chats I've had here, if you want to do that directing path or really have that unique voice, no, you have to figure that out for yourself. You, nobody is, there's no path that you can take where it's like, now you're directing a Hollywood film and, you know, reading any director's bio, it's not like that at all. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. so let me ask you, you this, are you happy? And with that whole, you know, the whole story thing that you gave at the beginning, are you doing what you wanted to do in the world? Is that, is that what you're doing now? Yeah, you know, I'm doing a section of what I wanted to do. Uh, so I started uh, a film, like my own freelance entity called Delarocco Studios. Uh, and I launched it around the time of my first animated film, my first stop motion film. And it's named after my parents, Della and Rocco. Uh, so yeah, I thought it was kind of had a ring to it. Um, and basically it's, I, when I was young, I loved stories. I loved telling stories. I loved writing stories. I loved playing stories. I made movies with my friends. Uh, I made comic books, all these different things. And at one point I was at a dinner with my friend, my, my parents' friends. And they said, what do you want to do? You know, 
you, you do, you do these different things. What do you want to do? I was like, I want to do one of each. And they're like, what do you mean? I was like, I want to be published in a comic book. I want to have uh, illustrations. I want to do a play. I want to do a comedy. I want to do a musical. I want to do a short film. I want to do a feature film. Um, And I've been doing that. Uh, Stop motion really rings true to me just because it is every form of of, of art that has ever existed on this planet in one digestible story. So that really hits on a lot of levels for me because sometimes I want to work with my hands and not be in front of a computer. Other times I want to be in front of a computer. Other times I just want to write. I want to paint. Stop motion is all of it. So I go back to it every so often and that's why I started most stop mo. But under Del Rocco studios, uh, basically the, the slogan is kind of uh, stage screen stories for stage screen and beyond. And so you don't I, exclusively do stop motion with Del Rocco then? No, uh, I've directed comedy in Chicago for many years. I had an entity called creepy hug, uh, where we did, uh, I don't want one of those, <laughs> <laughs> especially now. Right. Yeah. Uh, we did shows for six years out of uh, Second City and also worked at IO, which is now defunct because of COVID. Uh, did shows at The Annoyance, which are the three main state comedy institutions, arguably in the United States. If you ever find any comic uh, or uh, humorous or whatever, they've kind of gone through that system for the most part in the United States. Uh, So let me ask you this, because um, even as an artist, there's so much encouragement to specialize in one thing. Uh, Pretty much every studio is set up that way, unless you're a very, very small studio. But even then, um, you know, they're focusing on one type of animation only, like a studio might be like, we do commercial work. I've never really heard of a studio that's like, we do commercial work and we do comedies and we do like whatever, right? So how do you even do that like how do you get a client to trust that you can write a comedy show when your portfolio is you've got stop motion and you've got other storytelling techniques and whatnot like that seems uh uh, kind of rare to me i guess well um i think what it comes down to is who the client is at first so i've worked for uh, educational institutions museums i worked for a while for the department of health and human services I, uh, in, in this area, in the Bay Area where I live now, there is a company I worked with called First Person Travel, which basically did a, a narrative, an adventure narrative for two people that they have over the weekend. So I was an actor and producer on that. So it depends on the client, but mostly I try to gear myself away from typical commercial work and lend myself to things that are going to promote cultural awareness or education or that are going to be innovative outside of the storytelling process. So I've seen a lot of stuff that's been before. So, I mean, I guess kind of the niche is if you want something that's done before, sure, we can do it. But if you want something that hasn't been done and you want somebody who has a breadth of experience who's done, who's done directing and performing on a stage or on a screen or in real life in like personal interactions, I have a solid foundation in that. So. Right. So how does somebody even find out about you? A lot of word of mouth. Yeah. I'm, I mean, uh, I'm, like, Hey, you know, they have some kind of creative project and they're like, Oh yeah, you know, there's this guy, uh, you know, his name is <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> stop motion. And I heard he did an adventure narrative. He'd be perfect for you, even though I've never heard he did this thing before. <laughs> right. 
Well, it's funny because that's almost exactly how it worked when I moved out here. I was looking for a job. I kind of hit a roadblock in Chicago when I was living there. Uh, I'm born and raised in Chicago. And I was working a part-time job as a fake patient. Uh, yeah. What? What is like, that? Uh, did you ever, I don't know uh, if you ever watched Seinfeld. Uh, but, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but this might be a, fa- a lost reference, but there's an episode where Kramer is pretending to have symptoms and doctors have to diagnose you. Now, not only is that kind of what I do, but uh, Julia Louis-Dreyfus's, uh, I think it's her father or stepfather, started an institution which is kind of like the bar for lawyers, but for doctors, where doctors have to, within a day, see 12 patients in a day, and each one of these patients are actors, and they're based, there's like in Philadelphia, and. uh Los Angeles, in, uh, in Chicago, um, where you are, as an actor, performing the same part 12 times a day. Oh my and, you see, and every time they come in, they like, hello, and you go through the procedure, and you stay in character no matter what. So like you have a broken arm and you're, you're like screaming in pain, and oh my goodness, that's, so that's kind of yeah. hilarious. And it's like, how do they diagnose you? And not only do you just perform it, but then you evaluate to a degree how they did. Certain ways of how people ask questions, especially doctors, how they um, diagnose, how they handle you physically, how they handle you mentally, if they're compassionate or not. There's a big scale of things. And that is something I did for a long time and I was getting really burned out. I can Um, imagine. What was the weirdest uh, symptom you had to act out? Well, unfortunately, you do sign some pretty hefty okay, so uh, non-disclosure things, but I will let you know that it's it was a non-invasive uh, encounter. Yeah. So anything in the realm of something where they couldn't necessarily do something invasive, uh, but not necessarily physical. They could do physical things, but not invasive. Okay. Any, anything on that spectrum could be fair game in terms wow. of a case. I've never even heard of this before and that's ridiculous, but it kind of speaks to like your, well, acting and storytelling and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I would always tell myself, well, I'm um, still technically a paid actor, but when I came out this way, I finally was like, let's kind of get the ball rolling. And you were saying, how does the word get spread about what you want to do? I reached out to my acting community and one of my former actors, Brian, said, oh, I know a director who lives in the Bay and he does some great stuff. I should put you in touch. And then uh, I got in touch with him. And he says, we're actually looking for this character for this adventure narrative. So I started doing that. And then in the meantime, I'm applying for other- Can you explain other- what an adventure narrative is in like a couple- it's, Yeah, sure. Did you ever hear of the uh, the movie, The Game by Michael Douglas? Oh, uh, not by Michael, he's in it. Him and Sean Penn are in this movie that actually takes place in the Bay Area where he's like, I'm giving you a gift and you won't know when it starts until it starts. And it's basically- people around you all of a sudden are acting as if you are this person that is going to do or say something. So you become basically immersed in an adventure for the course of two days. So like kind of like a flash mob type of deal where they lead you and do things? Well, not necessarily. So as an example, like you will sign up for this. So if you wanted to do an adventure narrative, it says, okay, you will be picked up at the airport at this time from a driver. I was the driver. Gotcha. And I would play this part where I would just, uh, you know, feign ignorance. I was like, oh, somebody gave me this. I got to give this to you. It's, there's some, I don't know what's in there. And they'd ask me questions and you just play ignorant. 
and I, it says, where am I supposed to go? Usually they tell me, and then I would take them to their first destination where there would be another set of performers who would take them on and say, listen, you are a part, you are an agent and you are going to solve this case. Ah, that sounds and really that, fun. Yeah. And then I would pick them up on the following afternoon and I would inform them that I was like the, the Charlie of the Charlie's angels, letting them know that I'm the one who put them on the adventure and they did well, or they, you know, they maybe missed something, but you know, you try not to let them know after it's done that they didn't do it right. wrong. So I, I got that gig from one of my former actors. So how uh, does this all, so you've had like a lot of different experience in different ways. How does this all tie into storytelling? Does it enable you to tell more enticing stories or stories in like refreshing ways that people aren't used to, or is it still, you follow the classic story hero format or whatnot? You know, you could follow the, I mean, a lot of things will always follow the hero's journey, but you try to take a different spin or what it would look like. If you are challenging someone in a real life situation, they have to kind of play the game. If they don't play the game, then it's not really a story. Then they're just kind of like trying to, it's like watching a magician and not sitting back and being entertained, but just trying to figure out how it's done. Because mm -hmm. once you figure out how a magician does his tricks, you're like, oh, okay, he was just moving his thumb all along his finger and now all of a sudden his finger is sliding. It's like boring. But when you present that trick for the first time, I did that in an animation class and this woman was like, what happened? So you have to let yourself be immersed. But like in terms of having the experience in different realms of telling a story, you try to find ways to tell it differently or break the rules. Um, not the happy ending, the challenging ending, the to be continued. Um, there's a lot of different things that could be character driven that isn't necessarily narrative driven. Yeah. There's a lot of different ways to tell stories with clients. Um, like when I worked for the government, we would uh, do interactive, uh, role play and scenes about integrity in uh, medical research. Kind of, we would kind of use the Tuskegee experiments along, uh, along those lines about how the government infected a bunch of uh, black Americans with uh, tuberculosis to test something and a lot of people died, but this was a government mandated medical experiment. So we, that was like the big example of don't do that. But we would have all these other things that would be more relative to the medical industry today and do role plays talking about how not to alter your data and you know, get your name on the report that's gonna make you famous versus like just maybe failing and being okay with it. So, so, so stories basically, like narratives, would, narratives that curtail to the means in which the message is going to be delivered is kind of where that goes. Joshua, is there, so you also teach story, story and storytelling. Is there something that people typically make a big mistake on when they're first starting out that, that they don't realize or something? Are there like a typical thing that people do that is not that great? I mean, predictability is one thing that I'm not a fan of. Yeah. You know, sometimes we want a happy ending, you know, the, deus ex machina that comes from the sky and makes everything right with every right. character that's involved that can get tiresome uh sometimes it's needed especially if you really put your audience through the paces 
sometimes it can be a parody that you are definitely hitting it on the nose so hard that people know how it's going to end, but it's about the journey. Uh, so I would just say, keep it grounded in reality and then take them off the rails. Uh, I've seen a lot of people just expect that just because they're telling the story, people are going to be along for the ride. And that's not the case. One of the things I learned while I was doing comedy in Chicago, especially at IO, uh, was uh, there's a book that Del Close wrote with uh, Sharna Halpern. It's called Truth and Comedy. Like, if you want us to get on a magic train, make it look like a train first. Let's have the train pull up. Let's ground it in reality. Let's get a chance to step on the train and evaluate the train. And then all of a sudden, if the train derails, then you think, oh my gosh, I'm going to die. But for some reason, the train skips across the water. Now, all of a sudden, you're bringing the audience to a place like, what's going to happen next? And that's the best part of a story is taking an audience to a place that they're, they thought they were they were in a recognizable world and now all of a sudden they're in a place where they don't know what's going to happen next and they're invested. Gotcha. It's also like, don't show all your cards right up front at the start. <laughs> it's like, well, you, well actually you, you can, you can easily show all your cards at the start because people don't know that they're looking at the cards yet. Oh, fair. But if you plant those seeds while we're taking them through the part that they don't know what's happening, again, going back to this survival instinct, you start evaluating your surroundings and be like, what's going to happen next? I know I'm always the guy at the movie, unfortunately, that's like, this is going to happen next. And people right. don't know. You don't want to sit beside you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, generally speaking. Um, but I, there's nothing wrong with planting all those seeds and making them even apparent because audiences are smart and they're smarter every time. And you could always tell when an audience is like, oh, we knew how it was going to end and blah, 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 blah. That's because even whether they're aware of it or not, they are paying attention to those little things that you are showing your cards. Other people are not. And they might enjoy it a little bit more on a different level, visually or whatnot. So storytelling, I mean, I just feel like if you keep it grounded long enough that people are like, okay, I get it. And then you take them off to a place where like, I don't get what's going on and I just want to survive. That again, harkens back to the whole idea, not just to thrive, but to serve, like not to survive, but to thrive. So, so far, it sounds like you're heavily involved in like acting and storytelling. When did you start taking animation really seriously and really kind of honing that? Uh, I was, I actually started doing animation on a video camera that my father gave me when I was in high school. He actually found a VHS camera that would record as close to a frame of video as possible, an RCA camera, which I still have. Uh, I, I, for a while he was asking me, he was like, oh, this one does photos. And I was just like, well, that doesn't work this way because it's actually a second. Wait, so you specifically asked him to find you a camera that could take stills. Well, I was saying I'm always looking for one. And then he started getting invested in what I was looking for. Oh, okay. So I started making these little stop motion videos because I made a bunch of movies with my friends as kids in our basement. I would direct things and make props and sets and do these stupid little stories. Uh, and then I started making animation with this one camera and it, I probably got more into it uh, or revisited it once I got into college. I, got, I went to school for film at Columbia in Chicago. And while I was there... I had a whole shoot that was ready and my actor who had the film 16 millimeter film that was going to bring it to the shoot just ghosted didn't show up nothing and I was just like what's happening here I scraped together I had to run to the school get some film and do just just throw something together and recast uh, change it because it was just like a nightmare and after it was done 
uh, I was also taking an animation class. And when I got it, there was a stop motion class. I saw you can build your sets and your props, which I love doing, and lighting, which I really love doing. But you could also build your actors. And if you put your actor right there and walk away. skip out on you. <laughs> exactly. The actor is going to be where you left them. And then you can continue with the shoot. Uh, that was a lesson in another direction, though, because it, it's an exponentially longer process, obviously, doing stop motion than it would be to shoot a film. So uh, it was at Columbia that I was in film classes, and I started doing uh, animation and stop motion. But then I just really kind of dove into it. Nice. So we already kind of talked about that A to B to C path thing. Mm-hmm. Do you, did you see your education as kind of part of that process or really defining what you were going to do for the rest of your career? You know, when you're in college, you think the thing you're studying is the thing you're going to do for the rest of your life because you feel like I have to make that decision. Yeah. Uh, and you have external influences, especially saying make that decision because this is costing you a lot of money. Right. You're so invested. It's like yeah. tens of thousands of dollars, years of your time. Yep. <laughs> and I was working, uh, I was working as a janitor uh, and I was working as an intern and I was paying my way through college with my dad, helping out with the payment, my mom and my dad, I should say. Um, so I was just, they're just like, just get a degree. Just did a, get a degree. Cause they also knew like, I'm very like, I would want to say, I'm going to take a year off. My dad's like, just get the degree, please. <laughs> but, uh, what I feel like, I mean, your question was like, did, did I think when I was studying college is what I was going to end up doing? Yeah. Kind like, of- is it, is it part of that process that kind of society is like, do this thing, even in animation, and you know, you ended up becoming an animator and storyteller, or did it spark inside of you what you talked about where you're kind of going against the grain and figuring it out for yourself? Well, I would say I really wanted to get more into stop motion in Chicago, and it was my perception, and I'm not going to say this was the reality, but my perception is there, were, there are people who, when they have the ability or the, they know the craft, they weren't sharing the secrets hmm. or they weren't sharing the opportunities because the bigger fish were definitely working on that. I started working at a company called Calabash in Chicago, uh, which does like cereal commercials, Lucky Charms, Honey Nut Cheerios, that kind of thing. Um, and there was a stop motion project that came in and I was really excited. They knew I was a stop motion person and the person who was working on it I would kind of peek around and say, can I help? Can I do this? Can I do this? And they're like, no, 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 I got it. I got it. It's okay. And I was just like, oh, you know, this is the reason I kind of, you know, am working at this company is the opportunity that stop motion would come along, yeah. you know, everything 2D. Uh, so it was shortly after that, that I decided I probably wasn't a good fit for that environment. And it was, I also had some teachers who are great, wonderful. I still think they're amazing to this day, but they weren't necessarily sharing those opportunities either. I didn't realize for a very long time I was probably just in the wrong part of the world for stop motion. So stop motion was very, I mean, years ago, it was very specific to geographical location too. Very much so. Uh, That like I graduated in 98. So um, it wasn't long after, you know, Nightmare was out that that was the big thing. And that was all being done in the Bay Area. You know, I had ended up, in school starting to make a stop motion film. And then after I graduated, they hired me to teach it because I was doing so well. And I used my film as a teaching tool. So, so when I came out here, I had taken a long time break from actually producing a stop motion film. 
but it was in my background. And when uh, the academy was looking for somebody, I applied for an entry level position and they said, you're overqualified and you have a finished film and all this stuff. And I was just like, I'm just looking to plug into a creative community. So they hired me and I ended up kind of basically running that department for a while because uh, it was, I had the experience. I already had that foundation uh, and I was in the right part of the world. Uh, now that's kind of dissipating. You know, the Bay area is probably one of the most expensive areas in the world to live. Yeah. And stop motion takes real estate. And that is felt on many levels, not only at the academy, but uh, it, like as an artist, you know, finding the space to make it happen is important. And that's why now if you're a stop motion artist, you probably might have a little bit more opportunity as long as your production team is open to you doing something remotely. Right. So at the time you were, you were working as a stop motion, stop motion teacher. How did you end up getting your first paid gig in stop motion that wasn't teaching because you said you know you weren't in the right geographic region and all this other stuff so how did you actually go out and pursue that well you know the animation community as you probably have found isn't as big as you might think i have interviewed almost every stop motion animator on this podcast not not even <laughs> close but yeah it's like everybody <laughs> knows each other yeah you say a name and somebody knows that name and they've got something to say about that person too yeah. So that's how it kind of works. It's word of mouth. And uh, there's a woman who very talented, actually, she submitted a film to our festival. Her name is Lisa Barcy. And she is an instructor at DePaul in Chicago. And she teaches stop motion and other types of animation. She does this, this wonderful film called The Ephemeral Orphanage. Uh, so excited about this film. It's beautiful. She knew I was a stop motion person. And there was somebody working on an installation piece for a dance company that they wanted to project into an abandoned building through windows of animation, stop motion. So uh, we worked together on that in her basement uh, on a 16 millimeter Bolex and we shot some stuff and we were able to create this cool event that would run, uh, I'm trying to think if it ran for a couple of weekends or maybe like a month or so, but that was my first like paid stop motion gig. So it was just really finding somebody who wanted that look. It wasn't commercial. And I will say, and I'm kind of proud of this, uh, I have not done any real commercial work ever since Calabash. What do you mean and, commercial work? Like like for, like for corporations or studios or TV or like just? So like as an example, when I worked for Calabash, and this is nothing against doing serial commercials, but I, I didn't want to invest my time into putting forth a message I couldn't believe in right? and selling sugar cereals wasn't necessarily my message. I did work on a McGruff crime dog commercial once. Uh, and you know, you're doing entry level stuff like animating eyeball shadows or cleaning up in digital ink and paint, you know, Oh my gosh. Animating before. eyeball shadows. You go, go look at some of the tricks rabbit commercials and look at the shadows of those eyeballs and just appreciate that. I'm going to do that right after this. Yeah. <laughs> So uh, I was just kind of like, I'm expending a lot of effort. And by the end of the day, I'm just like, what am I doing? I'm not happy with what that is. So, you know, just switching gears. That's actually when I started getting into comedy a little bit more. Yeah. So wait, let's stop there because I want to ask you why that drive in you is so powerful that you switch. Because I would say a lot of people, maybe most people are working kind of for something that they don't necessarily believe in, but it's paying the bills. So how come you were in a position where, you know, you had a steady job, you're animating eyeball shadows <laughs> and yeah. you decide that 
you don't believe in this so strongly that you're going to find something that you do. Where, where does that come from? Um, I mean, where does it come from? Well, what, what, in, what yeah, enticed I, you I, enough to switch up your life to pursue that? Well, it's funny because I didn't necessarily see it as a switching up of my life in that I was always doing artistic things in grade yeah. school and in high school. I was the go-to for, oh, you need something done? Call, you know, let, do, put David on it. So I was always kind of a jack of all trades, if you will. Gotcha. And what can start? So when it came to storytelling, I, like after, after um, graduating, I was still teaching stop motion. I was working at Calabash for a while and then I stopped doing that. I started working for the University of Chicago and then that's when I started really investing in doing performance. And I just saw it as like being in front of the camera versus being behind the camera. Mm -hmm. Kind of like when I was making movies in my friend's basement. Uh, we would do all different types of things and it was all storytelling. So I never saw it as a switch. But as for the drive, I would say that I've pretty much come from a family of storytellers. Mm -hmm. uh, my dad was a Roman Catholic priest for 16 years. And he was a, a professional storyteller. Yeah. You know, he, uh, it's funny, uh, when I was a fake patient, uh, I, when I started working, they said, David Ficini, are you have, by any way related to Father Rocco? <laughs> and I, I was like, yeah, that's my dad. And they're like, oh my gosh. It's like, your dad used to tell us these stories about Marvin the Mouse. And he used to tell me these stories when we were growing up of this little mouse. He would bring it into the classrooms of the kids and he would tell a little moral tale about how Marvin would get into mischief. And then he'd always be forgiven by my dad uh, because, you know, forgiveness is yeah. a virtue. And that was kind of the message. So he has a bunch of Marvin the Mouse stories and there will be people who email the family and say, oh, the Marvin the Mouse stories. It's something I actually wanted to produce in stop motion. Oh. Um, we also, my dad... Uh, me and my brother and my father collaborated on a book called Muldoon, a true Chicago ghost story. The extended title is tales of a forgotten rectory. Uh, my dad was a very smart man. He knew Latin. Uh, he used to say the masses in Latin. He was uh, a storyteller and the first church he went to was supposedly haunted. So this basically the story of Muldoon is about him being assigned to a church his experiences of the hauntings and kind of becomes about his disillusionment of the business of religion hmm. and how he left the church. But there's a ghost story through the whole thing. My, my father has since passed and he ended up writing this book because he was on dialysis the last several years of his life. And oh, wow. one time he was uh, back from dialysis and it was Halloween and I was looking, rummaging for a costume, and I came over to my, my, my childhood home with Mike Owens and Greg Shear. And uh, if you talked to Mike before, he's like, oh, I'm wondering why I'm mentioning Greg Shear so much in this interview, if anyone's going to listen to that podcast. Uh, you, we all were roommates for a while. And um, while I'm looking for a costume, Mike and Greg are sitting in the living room. I'm like, hey, Dad, tell Mike and Greg some of the Muldoon stories, because he would tell us those stories all the time, too. And by the time I come back downstairs, my dad has this brightness on his face that I haven't seen in a while. And, you know, dialysis is pretty bad. He used to say it's like uh, being hung over every, every, every other day without the pleasure of the night before. Ooh. So he said, he said, he used to tell me his teeth hurt. 
So it's pretty, it's pretty invasive. And it was like a four hour stint every other day for him. But Mike and Greg were sitting there and they're like, you should really write these down. So my dad started writing the story of Muldoon and talking about his life. And, you know, he manifested him, his life story into a book that did really well for a time uh, in Chicago. You could still find it in a lot of libraries in that area. It's big in Ireland for some reason. Well, Irish priests are involved in it. So religion and Ireland are kind of synonymous. So uh, I come from that end. I'm a storyteller from my father. My mom has the gift of gab and she's very funny unless you know her too well, <laughs> where you can oh, be like, no. oh, just be quiet. But uh, everyone loves my mom, uh, Della. My uncles are businessmen, but they would always tell jokes and stories and they'd have like a very intentional way of telling a story and like having you hang on the words and wait for something like slow storytelling. So I feel like I was always involved in that kind of universe. And that's where my drive for telling stories comes from. That's really interesting. And it sounds like you just grew up being surrounded constantly by all these different influences from a lot of different people and perspectives that really kind of impacted your career. That's really interesting. So um, I guess why uh, are you pursuing stop motion still as your main thing versus like, why aren't you writing a book or why, like you said before that stop motion encompasses all the art forms. So like, what is that for you? Like, are you excited about everything or is it the animation specifically? Because stop motion takes so much patience and so many hours to produce just a tiny thing. Well, I'm going to argue first off that stop motion is probably no more time or patience intensive than any other form of animation. Okay. <laughs> it's just about where you invest it. I do like working with my hands and fabricating and understanding things. Like I do a lot of found object sculpture. I've always built sets and props for shows, especially comedy shows that they were thinking, oh, that's a little over the top. You don't have to rein it in a little bit because there'd be a sketch. Like there was a sketch where we had to build like a sex swing. So I was like, oh, cool. And it's like, I had to figure out a way to get an actress in a swing for this, maybe a two minute sketch. Gotcha. But you know, I was like, and then you have to haul the props back and forth. But I just like fabricating. Um, it's like I said before, it's every art form that's ever existed. You name an art form that exists and it's in stop motion. Right. So that's why I gravitate towards that on occasion. But I wouldn't say I keep going back to it because the last film that I actually, of my own that I directed was in 2007. So it's been a, it's been a spell. Yeah. Um, so this film, the cookie cutter that I am directing as well, um, it's, it's a little bit of a departure, but in the meantime, we've always, I've always been kind of, Focusing not necessarily on stop motion, but like innovative storytelling. So uh, I mentioned before Mike and Greg and Wendy, we are all kind of core creators of this concept called monkey and car, which right. is we've, we've gotten the narrative down. Uh, we know it backwards and forward. We know our Bible and it's now about putting together the look. And that isn't necessarily going to be stop motion, but it's going to be largely practical. You know, one of the things I really loved about uh, the Spider-Verse was how new it looked, how different it looked, how it made you feel differently. It wasn't flat. It wasn't big glossy eyes and perfectly flowing hair. It was a style. It was not afraid to be fun. And it was playing around like one of the best shots where spider-man's jumping off and the city is upside down we got the 
excellent opportunity to uh, visit John Williams over at Sony and he showed us that shot before the trailer was dropped and he was showing how it was composed. I'm like, this is beautiful. Uh, that kind of thing turns me on. So with Monkey and Car, the idea is mixing animations and together, but also what is the best way to tell the story to the immediate? Is it puppetry? Maybe. Is, is it like a, a mechanical device that you turn a crank and something moves across the screen? Whatever is gonna best tell the story, but keep you grounded in the reality and the truth of the, of the story. And if it works, then that's what it's going to be. And then when people say, what kind of animation it is, is it, I don't know. I mean, you could always default to experimental animation, which I think is, I don't know. Experimental always sounds like, you know, Dr. Frankenstein. Right. Is there, other than Spider-Verse, which is still kind of in a 2D, 3D world, is there something you can think of that the animation technique really depends on the story being told, where sometimes it's stop motion, sometimes it's live action, sometimes it's 2D, whatever, like puppets. Is there an example you can think of? Like, are you asking me what, what form of animation tells a story best? Well, I'm just wondering, like your vision for Monkey and Car, do you see that in something out that's, something that's already out there right now, kind of similar? The best example I've ever been able to find of the look I am trying to achieve is old Disney Viewmaster slides. Oh, okay. Wait, so, like those things that you, yeah. that you like turn on the top here and you look, okay. There was an exhibit, there was an exhibit, and I think it might not be open anymore at a, at a gallery in LA that had all that on, on display. And when Mike and I were last in LA, we were gonna try and go to it, but we just didn't have the time or energy. But I have a bunch of old Disney slides and it's like seeing 3D, uh, 2D characters sculpted in 3D is beautiful. The lighting and everything and just like posing it. Key pose animation is kind of also another thing. We're not looking at for it to be some big fluid thing except where it needs to be. But doing key pose animation and uh, with real sets and props and puppets, but overlaying a 2D style, um, using CG where effective if needed, but not looking fake. Like I don't want it to look like fake fire or fake smoke, yeah. but I don't necessarily want it to look like stop motion smoke like in Isle of Dogs. So I want it to look as real to the environment as possible, but still, you know, key, keyframe animation is kind of funny on its own. Yeah. It's like, it's like kind of got a, a brisk timing that could keep humor going. I think that's really interesting. One of the things that I've been thinking of and looking for examples of is how stop motion integrates with other forms of animation. It's really hard to find a good example where it's done in a way that doesn't seem obtruse, I guess. Like if you have like a, 2D fire on stop motion, sometimes the styles just mix match and it doesn't look that great. Or like if you add like CG special effects in a stop motion, sometimes it doesn't really match. So I'm excited mm -hmm. to see what you guys are doing. Is it, is it, are you putting this together as like a pilot slash pitch or is this something that you're just gonna produce independently? Well, we've been working on kind of manifesting the look and really creating a proof of concept that we could stand behind for quite some time. But we also have other things. You know, Mike has an animated series and right. he's producing stuff. I'm finishing a film. Greg does a lot of animation for a gaming company in Chicago. Wendy works with Mike now, but, you know, you got to pay the bills. Gotcha. Uh, but now that um, Mo Statmo has finished with the cookie cutter, the people on my team, I've told them about Monkey and Karn, they're very interested. So now that we have certain things that we definitely want to work out, now the next thing is fabricating those things, kind of Viewmaster style, and yeah. trying to see how we can make some nice images and maybe little snippets 
of a character to just convey what that character is like, even if it's just like a like a GIF or a, is it a GIF or is it a GIF? Well, I don't know. I think I think it's officially a GIF now. The creator came out and said it's GIF, which kind of wrestled everybody's jimmies or whatever the phrase is. <laughs> well, it's funny because I've been calling it. A, I've been calling it a GIF now, and someone says, "Oh no, the creator changed it back to GIF." Oh my goodness! Well, whatever. It's a GIF. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So basically, you know, coming up with simple, clean looking uh, moments. Uh, yeah, and like almost like the, in terms of the style, it's a little bit of a post, uh, like a mid-century modern look, kind of like if you ever saw those Tex Avery cartoons. Of yeah, I think I, think I saw features. some stuff that Mike Owens posted on LinkedIn, some like little tests and things, or maybe it was Facebook or whatnot, but yeah. I've, well, if you go to our Facebook page for Monkey and Car, we hashtag everything like House of Tomorrow, Neighborhood of Tomorrow, Car, Monkey. And if you just look on a hashtag, you'll see the inspiration that is driving what we're trying to build. This basically, it's just a bunch of things through the world that we are filtering into our Facebook. And then we're using that as a resource to kind of draw upon when we are building Car or his House of Tomorrow, the Garage of Tomorrow, all that kind of stuff. And I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a thing set in the 50s, so that, that uh, mid-century modern look. Right. Uh, is kind of where where it's at. It's a very distinct look too. Um, I I do want to ask you about Mo Stop Mo because I know we've mentioned that a bunch of times and not really explained it. But first, you mentioned before that you know everybody in the stop motion community knows each other, and you also are part of other communities like the comedy community and actors, or whatever. My question is: once you're kind of in and you have that word of mouth, does it get a whole lot easier? Is it kind of smooth sailing where you're you get opportunities, or are you constantly is it a struggle to put yourself out there still? Um, you know, it, 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 I will say it's still to be determined. I've been able to, uh, I've been able to produce some things that I really like. For me, working on Monkey and Car and having it being successful, not only in the production, but actually being distributed and seen is my goal. Uh, so that for me is to be determined everything else. There's always going to be a project that comes along that I feel like I can work on and, you know, pay the bills. Yeah. So in terms of networking with other people, like I've been out in the Bay area and I've met some beautifully talented people that I plan on working with for the rest of my life. You know, one of the nicer things about being a teacher is you can, it's almost like being a minor league scout. Right. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> so I'm just kind of like, I'm going to keep this person's email and keep this person's email and reach out when I know that there's something that I could work on. So with Mo Stop Mo, what we've actually done, and uh, I took it to Guadalajara uh, at, there's a Tech Monterey, it's an art school there that has a stop motion department. We actually use Monkey and Car and gave it to the students and say, produce some proofs of concept. Mm-hmm. So, um, growing our community and finding the talent out in Guadalajara is exciting. Also knowing that it's probably more affordable for space in Guadalajara to build maybe a bigger set for something might be something to invest in. Mike lives in uh, Minneapolis and he lives in a big old Adams family type house. So uh, in the attic, we kind of set up a most stop mo, not most stop mo, but just like a stop motion set with for monkey and car. But uh, like most stop mo is basically just saying, you know, we're just, embracing everyone of all art persuasions who are interested in either following stop motion or participating in it. And it runs outside of the education system. So it's not going to cost you anything. If you want to be a part of a production, then it's like, okay, 
we're, we would love to have you on board if you are a productive and responsible member. So, I mean, reputation kind of keeps on building itself, not only on my end, but on the people we work with. So anyone who wants to work on a most not most project, uh, I've seen very talented people that are assholes. And I've seen people who are not showing as much talent, but their enthusiasm and their attitude, I would work with in a beat over those assholes. Yeah. I've heard the same thing from pretty much everybody I've talked to. <laughs> yeah. And even like it doesn't matter way. how good you are. If, if, if you're an asshole, like goodbye. Yep. <laughs> and I had a very firsthand experience of that in the Bay area. And I don't want to get into the negativity of it, but right. uh, really ran into a very, very negative person who, uh, literally bullied not only in person but through email and this was a professional colleague uh and i was just kind of like just keeping my distance from that poison uh and very talented very talented very uh accomplished but i was just like i do not want any part of this person that's really sad yeah it is sad the only thing i could the only thing i could attribute it to is if you're working around noxious chemicals long enough in stop motion, it might affect your brain like the Mad Hatter. <laughs> right. Wear a mask. Um, yeah, so let's, let's talk about Mo.mo. Um, what exactly is Mo.mo? So Mo.mo is essentially started as just a hashtag to gather, you know, things that we're excited about. Became a club. Now it's an, uh, became a production that's outside of an educational system. And what we're interested in doing is getting the network of all people who are interested in stop motion to get into stop motion. Like I said, back in Chicago, I had a hard time really kind of getting into stop motion because people would hold that close to their chest. Yeah. Secrets of how to make something or the materials or where you buy something. A lot of little secrets are out there. And I'm just kind of like, if you give it away, we're going to proliferate. If we can just, sorry, I probably just said that wrong, (laughs) but if like people are saying there's not a lot of opportunity for stop motion, first off, I don't necessarily agree with that, but if that is the case, then why don't the people who are the gatekeepers, let's start giving it away and like, let's enable other people so we could grow this industry. I mean, everybody loves stop motion. I've never met somebody who thinks who hates stop motion. And if I did meet that person, you know, whatever. I don't go down that road. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Right. But it's just like, so the idea most demo is like, you want to learn how to do this. I'll show you how to do this. You want to know what the secret is here. This is how they did this. Gotcha. So and, how, how is it, I guess, cause I'm also part of some like Facebook communities and there's like stop motion animation.com so, uh, where, where people are kind of sharing what they know and resources and stuff. How is most stop mo different than those places? So what I would like most stop mo to be eventually, and this is very grandiose is a way to become unionized. Hmm. That's, that's very interesting. Cause a lot of animation is already unionized, but stop motion is not some reason. Well, the reason is because it's too many hats. There's not like a union needs to know that. Are you doing this? Are you doing this? Are you doing this? Right. And talking to some union people who tried and failed uh, in the last few years, after a long try is kind of like, uh, we can't, we can't unionize based on what the criteria is. And there's so many criteria, right. but if, if we had an entity where people were coming to us and like saying, Oh, we're looking for, a, we're looking for a fabricator. We're looking for an armaturist. We're looking for a painter. We're looking for a seamstress. Yeah. Um, 
say, okay, that's fine. This is the standard in which they need to work. And it's a safety standard, proper ventilation, uh, you know, proper. Yeah, that's huge in stop motion because there's so many toxic things and ways to injure yourself on top of Mm -hmm. just normal working environments. In Guadalajara, one of the reasons I went down there is to look at some of the studios and beautiful work being done. But uh, one of our, when I was traveling with Mike and Wendy, Wendy had an allergic reaction in the studio because she's allergic to latex and it was severe. But oh, as wow. soon as you walked in, any average person could tell and feel it right in their throat. It, like that there's a lot of uh, latex going here unventilated. Right. And it might, it might not show in the first year, but it might show in five years. And I don't want any cartoon that I'm making to give somebody a shorter life. Right. So it's kind of a little bit of saying, it's a protection, but it's also an opening of the door and saying, this is what exists. I'm happy to talk to anyone. I'm happy to speak. I'm happy to filter jobs or whatever, but making sure that it's mutual on both ends. Cause you, you, you might've experienced this already. It's a lot of people who want something for nothing and they will do shortcuts and they'll just be like, Oh, can you give me 10 seconds of animation tomorrow? Yeah. So it's just kind of like, let's be realistic. Let's be respectful and let's kind of go through the process. So that's more the higher end of what most Atmo aspires to be. One, there's also the reality that there are a lot of, I, I feel like desperate is the wrong word, but people who are willing to deliver that because yeah, they feel like the opportunities are rare or they are, are rare, I guess. So, and that almost sets a bad standard for expectations of what people even come to people for when they're looking for stop motion or just animation in general. You know, I have no problem with somebody giving stuff away uh, and you will get what you pay for. You, sometimes you could be pleasantly surprised. Oftentimes you are not. Yeah. But if it comes to compromising safety, that's a whole other thing. So if somebody is going to do some stop motion and clay and bust their butt and only make a hundred bucks over it for 10 seconds of animation, you want to get your name out there. You want to build a portfolio. That is the dangling carrot for most animators. And I, that, is, that is a thing that you do need to do. You need to prove yourself. No one's going to say just because you're out of art school that you know what you're doing. Prove to me you know what you're doing. But if they're going to say we want you to do this whole elaborate thing and they're not going to give any resources, you've got to really weigh your options. Like at my, my point in life, I'm not going to take that deal. But if somebody newer to that says, oh, this isn't the best, but it's going to give me some exposure and it's going to network me into a bigger community, you know, how do you see pay? Do you see pay financially or do you see pay in uh, having a vision for your career? Right. Makes sense. So how can I get involved with Mo Stop Mo right now? Well, uh, one of the things we like to do is just kind of see what, what, I mean, I've seen your work and it's already amazing. And I kind of want you to work on stuff going forward, not only with this, but I've, I, I wanted to talk to you more about other opportunities in terms of our structure. <laughs> uh, but I mean, if you have something to offer, the, the next thing that I'm focusing on primarily is monkey and car, but there's other things as well. And it's just like, if there's a project that comes my way and I know that you are able to do something, I would say pass that project along to Terry because I've seen his stuff. And if you've seen his stuff, then you could obviously, you know, go through him. You know, it's kind of a network thing. So if you just say, I'm looking for work. And if you ever know that you are doing this, that's fine. If you want, if the projects that are listed on most Statmo's page interest you and you want to be a part of them, that's another thing because that becomes kind of like a mentor protege process. We want to find people who can plug themselves in and not mind teaching while they are working. Hmm. So uh, the one interesting thing is uh, 
I, being in an educational environment, it, for me, it's important to produce films. Otherwise, it's all theory. And they have projects, but like having something to hang your hat on is important. But educational environments have certain like standards that kind of hold you in because you have to work within the accreditation process and blah, 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 blah. So if let's say you're not able to pay for a high bill education, but you want to get experience working on a stop motion film, say, well, this is the film you would start on this end. Tell us what your interests are and we can team you up with that person on this production. And by the end of the short production, you get an IMDB credit. You've networked with a bunch of people. Um, uh, it's not going to cost you. Yeah. You're not going to be paying your tuition off for the next 20 years. Uh, and it will facilitate something that you have something for a portfolio piece and it's going to show you the next thing. That actually sounds incredible to me because it's, if you think about how many internships there are for stop motion in uh -huh. the US or even around the world, there's so few and there's so many people wanting to get in. So how, how big is the demand for your program right now? Is it, is it like a matter of not a lot of people know about it or is it like there's crazy demand and you don't have enough positions? Like, so right now we are definitely like more in our infancy. There's people who have come to me and I said, I'm looking for this or this. Mm -hmm. uh, and I've been able to say, well, that might be good for this person here. It's not been a big thing. And to be honest, most of, like with this first production, we started in San Francisco and had to move over to Oakland and then COVID happened. So right. things are kind of ebb and flow. And right now it's in the ebb, but I have met people who are waiting for production to start up. And if someone comes to me and says, I'm looking for A, B, and C, I have those names and probably two extras. Right. So, so if somebody says, I'm going to check in with Mo Stopmo and see if they have somebody I can send them that way. And it doesn't have to be in the Bay area. I mean, okay, it and be if you create a network, even all around the world, you can have people come in and say, you know, I'm in Toronto working on a production for the next four months. And if there's somebody who, you know, wants to come in and, and I'll mentor them or they'll mentor me, then you can kind of hook those people up. That sounds great. Is that, yeah, that's, am I getting that right? Yeah, that's the intent. I mean, ideally what I've been trying to do is, uh, I want to set up Delo Rocco Studios as a nonprofit. Hmm. And what I would like to do is have Mo Statmo under that umbrella. So it is a system that is enabling storytelling with mostly, you know, with entertainment or a positive cultural awareness message yeah. to some degree. I mean, we can sell products too, you know, it all depends on what umbrella we're going to fall under. But if we're able to facilitate more storytellers building a community of artists putting out positive messages, that would be uh, the ideal situation. So once this production stops, it's like the idea of most stop mo also kind of going to different cities. We started in the Bay Area. I would love to do one in Chicago. I would love, because I know there's a lot of stop motion animators in Chicago because I was there. Uh, Minneapolis, I did a talk out there at Nice Moves. Um, and... I know that there's a great community there. Uh, Guadalajara, I've been back and forth to. Uh, there's people all around the world that we're starting to reach out to and they all have the same thing. It's like, we're looking for work and we're looking for a network. Yeah. And that's what Statmo is. I love that. I can't even think of this kind of existing in another, at least in the animation industry or just in the industry, in any industry in general. Like when I was in business, like, yeah, you'd hire internships, but there was never like a strong mentorship program where somebody could come in and work on a project with you mm -hmm. that I can think of. So this sounds, this sounds incredible to me if it, if it really like 
is successful and takes off, this is something I would definitely want to be involved in, <laughs> especially well, I, if I was just starting out. Like when I think about when mm -hmm. I came out of high school and was looking, I went downtown Toronto, I was looking for opportunities to work in stop motion. There was like none. And I didn't know where else to look really. There was like nothing. But I'm thinking nowadays, if there's something you like think this, in Toronto, it's like there's stop motion happening everywhere because it's like, you know, you got Sheridan and everything. There's animation everywhere, right? Yeah. So animation. It sounds great. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I kind of have one uh, question because in our pre, we had a chat beside this and we were talking about our gravestones, what we wanted them to say when we were done. And I oh, think that's an interesting I, question yeah, right. to kind of ask um, because we talked a lot about your career trajectory and why you're doing things. At the end of the day, you know, when you've lived your life, what do you want that gravestone to say for you? Like, because like, you know, your storytelling, you're building up Mo Stop Mo as a community and, and all these other things. Like, what is, what is the purpose of all this for you? I mean, what's the purpose of anything? I mean, okay. those, those are two different questions. So basically- Okay, sorry, let's, let's do the gravestone one. So, uh, um, well, I'll leave that actually after the, what I say first. Okay, all right. So, I mean, my thought is always leaving it better for the people around you. So whatever it is, we, if we are going to master this Neanderthal brainstem that just thinks that I'm reacting to it and it feels good, that's why we are challenging the system even today with tearing down monuments and really, really evaluating the status quo of how we have been accepting of things that are not just, they're not better for everybody. So really participating in your community and making it a better place for everyone else, that is my thrive message. So that's what I would say. It's like, leave it better than you found it. Yeah. And if they attach your name to it, then that's wonderful. Gotcha. In terms of my gravestone, I mean, I'll, I'll probably be cremated. I don't care what you do with my body. I'll be dead. <laughs> I, don't, I don't necessarily believe in an afterlife per se, but the one thing I will say is it's like, Energy isn't created or destroyed, it's simply changed. So who knows, there's energy in me, where does that energy go when I go? Who knows? Um, but if you wanted to create a gravestone for me, I would probably just want it to say, the end. The end. So like a complete story. Well, it could be an incomplete story, but that's where it ended. <laughs> gotcha. It's like, it, 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 it might I be like the Sopranos. You know? at the end. <laughs> Did you ever see the Sopranos? I have not actually, no, surprisingly, even though it's like one of the biggest and best apparently TV shows. Well, it's also known with having the worst ending of any series ever in that basically people thought their cable went out because it just went black. Oh, wow. Okay. And that was, that was the, the ending that I, who's the director of that? David Chase or something, which he's still defending to this day about the ending, but it, basically it's a cop out in my opinion. Uh, but you know, that's what might happen. It might just end to black, you know, who knows how I'm going to end, but if I'm leaving things the way like better and it's helping other people and it's plural, I mean, if it's, if it's going to help grow storytelling, yeah, then I feel like at least I had a purpose. Excellent. I like that. It's like leaving positive, like net positive kind of deal versus like, you know, I came and I, I covered my tracks and now I'm gone. It's like I came and made everything better for the community and, and the end. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. If, 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 if you could say just, I mean, how many people, if you could say they left it better for the community, 
that's a big thing to say. Yeah, that's true. I, and that's very honorable as well. Is there any, is there anything that uh, I missed that you wanted to chat about or any other topics or final pieces of wisdom that you want to bestow? Oh, geez. I mean, I, you got four more hours. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> uh, no, I, you know, I feel like I, you know, this, I appreciate you having an interest enough to interview me. I know originally you were, you were going to focus more on the stop motion. It becomes more about the storytelling. So, uh, yeah, wanna... I, I think that's fine because, you know, this is, a, this is an animation industry podcast, but part of the point of why I started it and want to give to the people listening is that it's just one part of your life. Like your life is the decisions you make. And for you, it's, you know, big storytelling is a big part of that. And it led you to work on stop motion versus like, I want to be a stop motion animator and I'll do that no matter what. And so, yeah, chat evolved where it went. Yeah. I mean, the only thing I would say is it's like, you're only the new thing that's going to come along can come from anybody. And there's a lot of people who let their environment squash what their dream is. And I hate to sound too flowery of like, follow your dream. Yeah. You know, cause there's a lot of people who are going to die with their dream kept in a little box safe. Um, if you're willing to open that box and get it dirty and compromise your dream or, you know, compromise your surroundings so you could achieve your dream, you got to weigh that out for yourself, but just make sure you live your life and don't be, you know, don't live in your brainstem. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Good, good final words of wisdom. I like that. I, I feel like you could write a, a like a book on, how to follow your neo, your <laughs> Neanderthal brain versus. <laughs> I definitely have a lot of material on it. And I've been, I give like kind of a speech, like I, I give like lectures on storytelling, but it does definitely get philosophical because I mean, I am the son of a preacher, man. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's hilarious. <laughs> all kind of through that lens, if you will. Sweet. Well, is there, is there anything else you'd like to share as we wrap it up? No, thanks a lot. I really appreciate this. And I want to say that, uh, I, we were talking before this interview that we want to talk more about you as well. So what I, all I want to do is hold you to, uh, I want to like to do a podcast interviewing you because I find it very interesting that you are like with the amount of podcasts that you're recording and that you're going to school and you're producing beautiful animation it's, you got a lot of energy and I would like, that's my first question on my podcast. The most Apple podcast is to be like, where do you get your energy? All right. I <laughs> will uh, do not answer that. That's for my podcast. <laughs> okay. Well, I guess you're gonna have to listen to, to that podcast. If you're listening now, yeah. a hook to listen to that podcast. Yeah, for sure. I'd love to come on and chat with you. I, I think it's, uh, very interesting that you want to hear my perspective because I just listen to other people's perspectives all day with this podcast. Yeah. People like to talk about themselves. I'm, 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 I'm flat. Like I'm surprised sometimes at like the patience of people who interview. Yeah. I like that, but I also like, I like to sit back and hear other people's stories and you have like a very, not only a very interesting and unique story, but I think it's a very relatable story. But I'm always uh, kind of wary of talking about myself too much. I don't know why. I just, I, I like to hear people's stories and I'll add my own here and there, but it, I find it difficult for myself to kind of just share my story. I don't know why. I'm afraid of people getting bored or, you know, going around in loops and thought uh -huh. holes and things. So I mean, I, that, that I happens. I'm happy to be interviewed by you. So let's, let's set that up. 
uh, that's a performance thing like not to kind of keep talking but like the like when i was doing improv getting on stage and failing which happened a lot yeah is something that you just have to realize nobody thinks of it as big of a deal as you do right like right, if yeah. you're boring them and if you bore them so what they're bored they have an entire life but i what i would say is you are you have an interesting enough story that i don't think it would be boring i think it would not only be informative but also kind of with your mission of kind of talking about how do people get into the industry you're a perfect example you are what i see as a successful trajectory of that story that people could emulate or relate to well thank you very much that's very flattering to hear and that's that's why that's a big part of why i'm sharing everything about my journey along the way. Like I, I post, you know, all my assignments from classes and like I try to share all the background and everything because when I was thinking about this career for so long, I didn't, it was so hard to find anybody who had really shared the nitty gritty of what they went through and kind of what they had to sacrifice and what they learned um, because the world is kind of set up to only share successes and highlights of that, you know, so um, yeah, but thank you very much. And, uh, we will definitely, we will definitely do that. Okay. Well, cool. yeah. And so thanks for coming on the podcast. And if you're listening and you want to, you know, get in touch with David or follow his work, you can do so by checking out delarocostudios.com or most.mo.com, which are both links that I'll include in the description of this chat. And that's all for now. So thank you so much for listening. Okay. Bye. Yeah.